this book helps us understand how uh, a Christian can live faithfully in a culture that is indifferent or even hostile to the gospel. Uh, this, the backstory, if you haven't been following the book of Daniel with us, the backstory is that Daniel, along with many other bright and, and uh, young people, uh, were taken from Jerusalem when Jerusalem was conquered by King Nebuchadnezzar. And they were taken to Babylon, uh, to the empire that conquered their land, and they were placed in positions of, of uh, responsibility in the Babylonian government. The idea was that if you take the elite from the country you conquer and you re-educate them, you put them in positions of influence, that they would just become Babylonian and there'll be nobody to lead a rebellion against you in the next generation. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar did, and so Daniel finds himself as a young man in Babylon, and he is learning how to serve the place where God has placed him, which is what God commanded the exiles to do through Jeremiah. He told them to seek the welfare of the city where I have placed you. So don't isolate, don't separate yourself, engage, build houses, marry people, start businesses, plant gardens. That was the command from God. And yet at the same time, don't become Babylonian. Don't assimilate to the pagan culture of Babylon. And so we find Daniel wrestling with that throughout his life. And when we come to this story, chapter 6, there's a different king now. The, the Medes and the Persians took over Babylon. So a new empire, a new king is in place. And this king recognizes that Daniel is very valuable to the empire because he's been a really good civil servant. In fact, he's acknowledged as one of the best, excellent in spirit. And so this new king, King Darius, puts him in charge and elevates him again. It seems like every king is recognizing that there's something special about Daniel. And what's special about him is that he serves the community without trying to elevate himself or enrich himself, which is very unusual in Babylon and, I dare say, today as well. And so he is now in his 80s. He's an older man now, still very active, continuing his career in government. And uh, he has never assimilated to the culture. It is interesting that in verse 13 it tells us that he is still referred to as one of the exiles from Judah. <laughs> He's in his 80s. He's lived most of his life, the 70 years he's lived in Babylon, and yet people still refer to him as an exile from Judah because he remained distinct. He remained different. But Daniel's participation in the culture uh, at the same time is very valuable. He's bringing a lot of positive to his culture and to his king. However, because he's different, he's experiencing some tension and even some persecution. So today we're learning that some other officials who were not as humble and not as helpful, they decided to trap him somehow and to remove him so they could elevate themselves. So they're plotting this, this whole plan to get him in trouble. And the only way they can do it is to find fault with his faith, with his religion. So this is where we find ourselves. This is a straightforward story, familiar to probably all of us. This, this Daniel is thrown into the den of lions um, and these are, by the way, these are not Detroit lions. Uh, you just have to defend yourself for one half, and then they fall apart in the second half. <laughs> I have a lot of family in Michigan. I've watched too many Lions games. So, No, these are real lions. This is, uh, we're talking about, it's Super Bowl Sunday. I had to make a football <laughs> joke. It's not the last one I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, I don't think. 
But he finds himself in this dire situation, and yet, through his suffering, through his trial, the king, this new king, King Darius, gets converted, just like Nebuchadnezzar got converted to the, the true God, the real God, through the witness, and especially here through the suffering of Daniel. And so my, my big point today is that when we suffer as Christians, God speaks through us, and the world looks at us, the world observes how we suffer, and based on how we suffer, the world is making conclusions about our God, which is what exactly what happened here with Daniel. So I want to look at what happened and what Darius, what the king learned about Daniel's faith. So number one, I'd like us to consider the nature of Daniel's faith is uh, something that King Darius learned is the nature of his faith. Secondly, the power of Daniel's faith. And finally, the heart of Daniel's faith. So the nature, the power, and the heart of Daniel's faith. So let's look at the nature of Daniel's faith first. Daniel hears about the decree of the king, uh, which forbids everybody, anybody, to worship anything other than the emperor, other than the king, for 30 days. So it's sort of a, a loyalty check. You know, nobody is objecting to other idols and gods in Babylon. It's a pluralistic society. Everybody has their own deity. However, every once in a while, kings do something to make sure that you're still supporting the empire above whatever your own personal religious preference may be. We saw that in the same way with Nebuchadnezzar and the idols, the same scenario. And so in this case, uh, these jealous uh, officers that are competing with Daniel are using kind of maybe the vanity or the, the uh, power-hungry power um, nature of the king to use it to their benefit, and so they're convincing the king to pass this edict, and it's a serious business. The king doesn't want to break his word, and so he does it thinking, this is a good thing. We'll just rally. He's a new king. We'll just get everybody on board with uh, the empire, and so he does that, and Daniel knows about this. He knows this is a trap. He knows this is just people manipulating the king, and what does he do? How does he respond to this? When he hears about the edict, he goes home, as he usually does, and he continues to pray three times a day, windows open to Jerusalem, kneeling before his God like nothing has changed. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Uh, he is faced with uh, probably, a, uh, you know, likely a certain death here if he doesn't obey the king's command. And yet that doesn't seem to affect his daily routine. Why does he keep praying? Or why is he praying so openly is another question, right? Why doesn't he make some compromise here and maybe try to get away with his religious piety and still keep his job and still keep his life? I think the answer is, is because Daniel understands that his faith by its very nature is a relationship with God. His faith by its very nature is a relationship with God with God. And this relationship with God is so valuable to him that he can't stop talking to God regardless what the threats are. Darius sees that, and I know that because he's referring to God, this is in, in verse 26 of our chapter, he's referring to God as the living God, as the living God. So Darius is observing what Daniel is doing, and he's concluding that this faith, this religion that Daniel has must be different from what I am familiar with in my empire. Daniel is prioritizing a relationship with God, even though he could have easily adjusted his piety, adjusted his religious observance, and avoid 
death, but Daniel doesn't do that. Now, in Darius's experience, you know, there's lots of religions in Babylon, lots of religions in the world today, lots of worldviews, and he's familiar with people using a deity, doing something that will ingratiate yourself to, to the deity, doing something that will get you on the good side of the deity so that you can get a benefit. So you're using an idol, you're using a deity to get what you want. Darius is familiar with that kind of religion. But this is different. Daniel is sticking with his God even though he knows that's going to cost him probably not just his career, but probably his life. Now, people in Babylon chose their religion based on its usefulness to them. And they rejected a religion when it seemed to interfere with their goals. This is how we operate as well today. However, Daniel is different. He seems to have a relationship with God as a person. as a person, living God. He seems to believe in this person that he likes spending time with. And so he continues to pray, even though there is tremendous danger to his life. I wonder if when we suffer and the world is observing us, if they are concluding that our religion, our faith, our understanding of God is different from all the other faiths. I wonder if they're making that connection that when we suffer, we are relating to God as a person. I wonder if that, that registers. Now, let me ask you, this is a, a diagnostic question. What happens to your spiritual disciplines when you are in crisis? Very good question to ask ourselves. What happens to your prayer time, your Bible reading time, your church going, your serving, whatever your spiritual commitments, ongoing commitments are or should be, what happens to those spiritual disciplines when a crisis hits your life? Now, Daniel is consistent. Crisis or no crisis, he continues to do what he has done all his life. Three times a day, he prays to God in a certain way. It's consistent. I think because he's interested in knowing God and communion with God as a person. There's a relationship there. When you encounter a difficult time, when I encounter a difficult time, do we start praying even though we barely prayed before a crisis came into our lives? So in other words, you're doing well, you barely think about God. But when a crisis comes, you're on your knees, windows open towards Jerusalem three times a day. Many people get very religious when a hard thing happens in their lives. Now, what does it say? What does that dynamic, that pattern say about their view of God? Well, they talk to him only when they need him. That's the conclusion. If your disciplines all of a sudden become very important to you when you're going through a season of suffering, but in other times, times when you're doing well, you're not praying, you're not reading your Bible, you're not going to church, that tells other people that you get God when you need God but he's not a person in your life that you have an ongoing relationship with in general. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't pray more at certain times in our lives. Of course, there are times to fast. There are times to fervently pray for something. But when you see it as a pattern, when prayer is almost absent during a time of peace in your life, but during a crisis, all of a sudden you become a very religious person, 
It just tells you you're using God. This is kind of like idolatry of Babylon. You're using God when you need him. Now let me give you another scenario here. Uh, maybe you are a very consistent person in your spiritual disciplines. You read your Bible, you pray, you go to church. And when a crisis hits, you stop praying and you stop reading your Bible. Things just kind of fall apart. Now what does that say about your faith? Now, I've seen many people uh, leave church and walk away from Christ during a trial. I think what it tells us is that they talked to God as long as he was blessing them. But when he stopped blessing them, they had no use for God anymore. When a crisis hit, they realized that they did not get what they were hoping for from God. And all that time that they've invested in a relationship with him simply now has no reason to continue. Now again, this is more like idolatry in Babylon than real Christianity. Because idolaters use idols, right? When we worship something, we want something from that. And if it doesn't give it to us, we stop worshiping. Or if we think uh, we can forget about them for, for a time, but then we really need them, we can pull them out, then we do that. That's idolatry. That's not true Christianity. Real Christianity is based on our relationship with God as a person. And so we see that in Daniel. His communication with God doesn't change. He continues to pray because he loves God. He wants to be with him. It makes perfect sense if he's a person you know who's in your life and you're developing a relationship with him. You see, Daniel was not using God to get what he wanted. Nor was he disappointed that God wasn't blessing him anymore. He simply wanted God himself. And he got God himself. His faith was rooted in a relationship and not in circumstances. It was a relationship with a real person. Okay, let me illustrate that since it is Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, you were expecting a couple football references from me today. Aaron Rodgers is a, is a quarterback, a very good quarterback, I hear. He gave a recent interview, and he described his experience uh, with Christianity. Very insightful. He grew up going to church, uh, but only because his parents made him, as many kids uh, do. In high school, he got involved with Young Life, which is an organization that ministers to, to high schoolers. And he was really attracted, he said, by, by the leaders, uh, that particular leader's relatability and the welcoming atmosphere of the group. And God really was really active in young life during his high school years. He uh, related to how the leader talked about Jesus and how meaningful, uh, he had meaningful experiences going to Mexico to do service projects. So speaks fondly of that time. However, in college, Rogers couldn't connect to any campus ministry, kind of lamenting that young life wasn't there, couldn't find an equivalent, and uh, started questioning his faith. And then he said, some friends helped me, he said, to, and this is, I'm quoting from him now, he says, some friends helped me uh, figure out what exactly I wanted to believe. And ultimately, it was that rules and regulations and binary systems don't really resonate with me. It's been a fun path to a different kind of spirituality, which to me, it's been more meaningful. Some people just need structure, they need tradition and stuff, and that works for them. And I don't have a problem with it, it doesn't resonate with me. 
Now, I want you to get what, you, what he's saying. This is very insightful, and this helps us understand how people process the gospel. He had a great experience in high school. It fit him. It was a great time. He learned. He grew as a person. In college, that no longer fit him. And so some friends helped him understand that there are other options. And so he found something that fits him better. And he rationalized it by saying, well, you know, there's different paths, there's different religions, and some people need structure, some people need tradition, some people need discipline, other people don't. I fall in the category of people that don't need that. And so I have found this other path to spirituality that is free from regulations, it's free from rules, it's free from binary systems. And by that he means that some people are in, some people are out. Some people are saved, some people are damned. Some people are Christians, some people are not Christians. He says heaven and hell. He says, I, I don't like the binary system of, of Christianity. So he abandons that and finds another path that fits him. Now let me first say that this sounds strange coming from a person who has committed his life to professional football, which is not a game that lacks structure or rules, tradition, or rituals, right? <laughs> and of course, football is not unfamiliar with binary systems because every Sunday, players are separated into two distinct groups of winners and losers. So it's weird that there's a different standard that is used for the spiritual things versus the kind of real things of life. But on a more serious note, I think Roger's rejection of Christianity betrays a misunderstanding of what it is. I don't think he understands the nature of our faith. He rejected Christianity because he did not like certain parts of it and did not resonate with certain beliefs of it. I think Roger's, like many of us, have bought into this cultural belief that when it comes to religion and spirituality, we can have our choice what fits us best. Lots of options. That's Babylon. You know, that's Babylon. Go find any God you want. Lots of temples, lots of traditions. Find the one that fits you. And by the way, this is exactly what's happening today. However, Scripture tells us that the choice is not between different religions. The choice is relationship with the one true God or no relationship with him. That's the choice. It seems to me that Rogers may have missed the greatest binary, the person of Jesus. He's rejected something, but I don't know if he really knows what he's rejecting in Christianity. Because the point isn't the rules and regulations and traditions. The point is a relationship with Jesus. Now, because Christianity is basically about a relationship with a person, and this person is the living God, the Lord of heaven and earth, please register that, right? We're talking about a relationship with God, this very large, infinite person that created everything we see and everything we don't see. This is infinitely wise and thrice holy person. It would be foolish for us to expect to understand or agree with everything he says or does. Put religion in the context of a relationship with God. If I'm coming to God and then I find something I disagree with and I reject him on that basis, who's wiser here in this situation? Of course I'm not going to understand everything God says. 
I start with that. Of course I'm not going to agree with everything he does in my life. I have to start with that. He's an infinitely wise, all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient person. I am not that. And so if I want to deal with him as a person, I am accepting that there will be lots of times when we will disagree and I will just go with him on those issues. Now, let me give you an illustration. Christianity is like a house. When you enter it for the first time, the layout of the house doesn't make any sense. Uh, We don't know where things are in that house or why certain pieces of furniture are arranged in a certain way. Colors seem strange to us at first. We don't know whether we should take our shoes off or keep them on, whether we should use coasters, where can I sit. None of that is clear when you enter Christianity, when you just walk into the house. However, we remember that we were invited into that house by a person who lives there. And so our purpose in being there is not to agree with the way that house is run, but to get to know the person who brought us in. And so over time, as we meet that person, as we get to know him, we are no longer puzzled by the layout. In fact, we learned that the owner is a brilliant architect, and he designed the house to suit himself and his guests perfectly. But it's never been done before, so it's all new to me, and I need to learn about the person to understand how the house is laid out. As time goes on, we get familiar with what happens in that house. And so furniture now begins to make sense because we know what's happening in that room, so we know this is why these pieces of furniture are set up in that way. We realize that the rules of the house are meant to create an environment of peace, and we start appreciating that as we get to know the person. Our experience of the house supports our experience of the owner. How foolish would it be for us to reject the owner because we have some issues with his house? The Babylonian culture, as well as the Western culture of today, tells us to look for a house that fits us. This is how you pick a religion. Find a house that makes sense to you and go and live in that house. But Christianity, this is very different. There's no other religion like that. Christianity offers us a relationship with the owner in his house. Very different. And so if we evaluate Christianity on the basis of here's a number of houses I can live in, which one sits me best, you may reject it, but you're not really rejecting Christianity. Because to reject Christianity is to reject the person who lives in the house. Only then can you understand why the house is the way it is. Now look at Daniel. Even faced with the prospect of being thrown to the lions, Daniel does not stop praying. He may not understand what God is doing by allowing this trial in his life, but he is committed to the relationship. He knows he has not figured out everything about God's house, but he trusts the person. And he is not put off by the unexpected and unexplained. His relationship is strong enough to handle it. Now, what about you? Is your relationship with God strong enough to handle something confusing or painful or unexplained or unexpected. This is really important because if you walk away from God when the house doesn't make sense, you're not really there for God, you're there for the house. But if you're there for God, you will figure out how that house works 
eventually. C.S. Lewis, I, I think, puts it really well when he says, you will never tame the lions of your life until you let God be the untamed lion in your life. You have to let God be God. If he is who he is, there's going to be things you don't understand. But if you trust the relationship, if you know the person, you can get through those trials and periods of suffering and still stay in the house. But the key is relationship. That's the nature of our faith. Now, secondly, the power of Daniel's faith. Darius learns that God is a powerful God, and he learns it in two ways. The first obvious expression of power is that Daniel is delivered from the lions. Now, this is clearly a miracle. The king finds Daniel unharmed, without a scratch, after spending a night with hungry lions. We know they're hungry because other people got killed very quickly after Daniel left the pit. Now, in verse 27, Darius says about God. So this is how we know what he's getting from Daniel's life, what conclusions he's making, because Darius says about God, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. It is very important for us as Christians to be open with others about God's deliverances in our lives. Jolene gave me a prayer journal for Christmas which forces me to record my prayer needs, my requests, very specifically with a date, and then I have to record what God did based on my requests. It's a great discipline because it forces me to notice what God is doing. It forces me to place my trust in Him by writing it down. It's, it's kind of a scary thing, I think, sometimes. You're praying for something, you know, you can change it later, and you can say, well, I was praying for that, but, you know, in the back of my mind, I really had something else in mind. You can't do it when you wrote it down. So very careful how I phrase my prayers. But it forces me to see what God is actually doing in my life in real time. And it is amazing, and, and most of you have the same testimonies. You know, I'm not, I'm not special in this, but it's amazing to me uh, how much God is involved and how often he, he, he delivers me out of trouble, how often he gives me things I need, how often he comes at the right time and provides something for me. We need to notice that, and we need to share it. We actually have a church prayer journal that we pull out every once in a while, we'll probably do it this coming Lent again, where we write down our requests and, and responses. Just look through it sometime. You'll be tremendously encouraged to know that God answers his people's prayers. God delivers his people. Now, I think, you know, our church, our church culture, kind of the Bible, evangelical church culture, we don't, we don't talk about deliverances as much. Some other churches do. It's a regular thing to testify to a deliverance in your life. I think we may need to learn from those churches. We need to testify to what God has done in our lives, even this week. And we need to be open with, with those testimonies, especially to those outside of the faith. So they can see that our God delivers. Our God is a living person. He's involved in my life, and he helps. And I can count on his help. And so Daniel is delivered through this miraculous thing, impossible to explain without God, and that matters to Darius. Now, the second expression of the power of Daniel's faith is more subtle. And I want to make sure I, 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 I say it clearly, because sometimes God doesn't deliver you from the lions. Because he's a person, because he's wise, because he is powerful, he has plans that we don't understand. And that's okay, because we can trust the relationship. But when he doesn't deliver you, 
he still works in your life. You know, Margaret talked about that, that he always answers prayers. It's how he answers them may, may differ. It may not be what we expected, but he's always involved and he always answers. So in this case, we see a great contrast between a peaceful Daniel and an anxious Darius. And it's amazing how different they are. Who's being thrown to the lions here? It seems like Darius is more concerned than Daniel. Now listen to one commentator. He says, It is clear that contrary to all expectations, Daniel actually spent a far more comfortable night in the stinking pit than Darius did in his royal luxury. It's a great contrast. It's, it's kind of humorous, I think. When, when Daniel is suffering in peace and Darius just can't eat, can't sleep, worried about his friend, can't do anything about it, just very anxious. I, I love to see Christians suffering in peace. Now, I don't mean to say that Christians suffer without pain, that it doesn't hurt. Of course it hurts. It's supposed to hurt. But there's a peace that God gives us. Again, many testimonies in this congregation of people that went through very difficult times and had peace and even joy throughout that time. Now, how could Daniel be so peaceful? Where did that peace come from? Look at verse 10 with me. It says that he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. When he prayed, he had his windows open toward Jerusalem. Daniel had peace in the trials in Babylon because his heart was in Jerusalem. His well-being, his very identity, was not tied to his life in Babylon. Like Abraham, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. His peace was not based on his relationship with the king of Babylon or the king of Persia. His peace came from his relationship with the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, you may remember in chapter 1, Daniel refused to eat from the king's table. Remember, he, had, he said, I only eat vegetables, only drink water. Uh, why? because he didn't want to get attached to the king's favor. He, he decided to, to refuse to participate in that particular pattern, what we called it cultural liturgy, because he didn't want his affections to be tied to his relationship with the king of Babylon. And so he refused to do that. Now, that's the negative. We, we need to do that. We need to look at the cultural liturgies of today and say, I'm not going to do that, even though it's harmless in itself, but for me, that's going to tie my heart to this world too much. So I'm not going to do that. But the positive of that is I'm going to pursue my relationship with the real king. You see, you have to do both. You have to say no to the world, but you also have to say yes to cultivating a relationship with God. And you see that in Daniel's case. Daniel organized his life in a way that he would not forget who his real king was and where his real home was. He never assimilated to the Babylonian culture, even though he served Babylon better than anyone else. I mean, it's amazing. His home was in Babylon, but his windows were open toward Jerusalem. Let's ask ourselves, do we have our windows open toward Jerusalem? Do we know who our real king is and where our true home is? Can you say with the psalmist, whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire 
besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you say that honestly? That your heart is so tied to God that even if your physical heart, your flesh will fail, God is your strength and your portion forever. Are your windows open toward Jerusalem? Let me finish by talking about the heart of Daniel's faith. This is the most important point, even though that's going to be the the briefest today. Watching Daniel suffer, Darius learned about the most important, the center, the secret, the heart of his faith. The king, this is what the king learned. He learned that suffering of an innocent person brings blessings to the guilty. That the suffering of an innocent brings blessings to the guilty. This is at the heart of our faith. This is at the heart of Daniel's faith. Think about it. Darius is obviously at fault here. He allows his officials to manipulate him into putting to death a faithful servant. Darius knows that Daniel is innocent. He does not have a problem with Daniel, but he's stuck. He's stuck in this worldly structure that forces him to put to death this innocent person. Now, we often in the story, focus on the miracle of Daniel's deliverance from the lion's pit. And I wanted to cover that for sure, because that's very important. But even a greater miracle took place at that time. Daniel was delivered from the physical death, but Darius was delivered from spiritual death. This idolatrous, power-hungry king encounters the living God and is converted, is changed, he's saved. God uses the suffering of the innocent Daniel to save the guilty Darius. That's the miracle. Now, of course, this is every Christian's story. This is every Christian's, true Christian's experience of Christianity. At the heart of our faith, faith is the suffering of the innocent that gives blessings to the guilty. When Daniel had his windows open toward Jerusalem, It was not so much that he missed the city of Jerusalem. It was God's presence among his people. And the presence was concentrated in the temple, specifically over the Ark of the Covenant, above the mercy seat on which the blood of the sacrifice was sprinkled for the forgiveness of their sins. When the exiles returned to Jerusalem, they did not rebuild the city first. They rebuilt the temple. That's why they were there. They needed the temple. They needed the sacrifice of an innocent to cover the sins of the guilty. This is where, at that temple, in the Holy of Holies, over the mercy seat, this is where God promised his people to meet with them. The temple was destroyed, of course, by Nebuchadnezzar, as you remember. And all the Jewish exiles, including Daniel, were longing for the day when it was going to be rebuilt and the glory of God would return to his people, that cloud of the glory would return to the temple. When a death of an innocent lamb was going to bestow the benefits of forgiveness for the guilty people. Now the temple was rebuilt, actually just a, uh, several years later, there's, the exiles are going back to Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, they started bringing the sacrifices again, the priests started doing what they needed to do. But something greater was in the works. God was planning something much bigger than that. When Jesus Christ came to Jerusalem years, years after Daniel, he said about himself, 
that once the temple of his body was destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days. Do you remember that? So this is God coming in the flesh to his people. The temple is there, but Jesus says, this is not the real temple. There's a greater temple that's coming. When you put me to death on that cross, you will destroy the temple, and yet I will bring it back. I will rise again, and in me will be the meeting place of God and his people. When a death of an innocent was going to really bring true forgiveness to the guilty. Jesus was promising a more permanent place of meeting. He was promising an eternal reconciliation, a new covenant, forgiveness of sins forever, a sure foundation for a never-ending relationship. He was promising God's people that they would find a home that could never be destroyed. You could never be, nobody was going to take you out in exile from that. And a king who would never be deposed. Now, like Daniel, Jesus was accused by those who were jealous of his influence. Pontius Pilate, much like Darius, unsuccessfully tried to release Jesus from the verdict of death. Jesus was in the tomb, much like Daniel, and the stone was rolled to cover the pit and a seal was put on it. Like Daniel, Jesus was an innocent person condemned by the guilty. But, unlike Daniel, Jesus was not spared. Remember, a few chapters back when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were preserved in the fire by the presence of another, the angel of God, the pre-incarnate Christ, came into their suffering, and they were released from the suffering, but Jesus stayed in the furnace. Much like in the story, Daniel is released from the lion's pit unharmed, but Jesus stayed in the lion's pit. The angel of the Lord, Jesus himself, come in to rescue Daniel and yet stand to take the suffering that Daniel was about to experience. They came out, Daniel came out, but Jesus did not. There's a, a passage, I'm going to finish with this, that in Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is the psalm that Jesus had on his mind when he was dying on the cross. Now you remember the famous quote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's from Psalm 22. Later in the psalm, there's a prayer I think Jesus was praying that prayer on the cross because he was remembering the psalm. The prayer goes like this. This is Psalm 22, 21. Save me from the mouth of the lion. I think Jesus is praying that. I think Jesus is thinking about Daniel. I think Jesus is thinking about the wrath of God that's represented by the roaring lions. And Jesus is praying for God to save him, but God doesn't save him. God doesn't answer his prayer. God leaves him in the pit. God leaves him on the cross. Jesus dies. Why? He dies in our place so we could be released from the pit. So Daniel could walk out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could walk out of the furnace. Because Jesus stayed because God did not answer his prayer. In his wisdom, in his power, in his love, God keeps Daniel, or keeps Jesus in the pit so Daniel can walk out. Has the heart of your faith the heart of Christianity, this idea that an innocent dies for the guilty, and this is how you're spared, this is how you're released, has it captured your heart?